Some of our kids love to ask us these would you rather questions. So like one of them that I've been asked multiple times is would I rather lose one leg or both arms? <laughs> so you can think about that. It's a deeply spiritual question. It reveals a lot about your soul and your future and your salvation. Uh, maybe not profound, but it forces you to say, well, all right, do I like walking or running? Could I do that? What could I get away with? What would work? Like, can I, if I didn't have any arms or one arm, like it changes the calculation, right? And it also shows what you love more. So maybe for me, I'd keep hands so I could sit at a piano, right? Because I'd love the piano, but if I only had one arm, that'd be really tricky. And so values work that way. So I want you to turn to your neighbor. We're going to do two of them here together to start things off. Would you rather <clears throat> lose your sight or your memories? Ooh. Turn to a neighbor, you got 10 seconds. Come up with something, say why. Second question, second question, second question. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Focus, focus. Would I rather you lose your speaking ability? Or, no, 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 that's, that's my question. Um, second question, would you rather be able to see 10 minutes into the future or 100 years? Deep, profound questions. <laughs> Rejoin, rejoin this conversation. So, this is actually me helping you a little bit because if Thanksgiving gets boring, bring one of these questions out, make some small talk, connect with the people that are around you. Uh, we do mental exercises like this all the time, actually, in not as like trivial sorts of ways. Would I, should I do this or should I do that? What are my values? The one that came to my mind is kind of like a, a pointed one, so I'm going to throw it out there. But um, we ask ourselves, would I rather stay later at work or would I rather go home? Sometimes you'd rather stay later at work. Work is like a safe environment. You go home and all the laundry's waiting for you and the dishes and the complaining is waiting for you. And maybe there's lots of kids running around and so if you're a mom or a dad out of the house, you're not ready to like jump back into that chaos yet. Or maybe like, I can't wait to get out of this place. I don't even like this job. I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for my family. If it's 5.01, I'm here one minute too late. I gotta go. And so it's showing your values, right? And sometimes that kind of hits home because you're like, oh man, things aren't good with my spouse right now. I don't, I'm not ready to go home. 
Maybe there's a little bit more I can work ahead for tomorrow. You know, you're, you're procrastinating, you're staying away from that. But we're doing these kind of calculations all the time in simple things and in big things. And sometimes we get put into choices. We feel like there's no good choice, right? You have to trade. How much would I give up to be able to do this? What if we ask some trade questions? And I want you to turn and ask each other this. But like, would you give up a long life for yourself? If it meant that all of your family and friends would go to heaven. Yes. 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 No. Right. Okay. Like it just forces us to evaluate what our priorities are. We have our dreams. We want to live out our long life. What if it meant we would die tomorrow, but everybody would know be saved? Would we give up our home and possessions forever, like never to be homed again, to live a homeless life? If it meant that our children would always live in homes for the rest of their lives and never be out of work. Like, what do we prioritize? More Would we give up our ability to walk if God would give us the ability to have the miracle and power of healing others so that we couldn't walk, but they might? Like, what's more valuable? And then, and then you start to push it even further, and it's like, well, what if the thing was so good that I'd be willing to do the wrong thing to get it? What would I compromise to get that thing? Would I be willing to lie about something if it meant like security for my family for years or a blessing for my child or a promotion at work and this lie won't have any further ripples. It's just one moment. Can I make that one concession to my ethics? Because look what will come from it if I just say or do this one thing. Would I be willing to cheat one person out of something that they deserve if it would mean like an entire career of something that I also deserve and would be great at? And like, you see these, these values get put into, into test by our situations. And as soon as the stakes get high enough and we feel desperate enough, often, we resort to whatever measures necessary to try to get the results that we really feel we need and want. There's like an act of desperation. I've got to achieve this. I've got to get this. I've got to fix this. I'm in an argument with someone. I'm just going to lie because I know it'll make this go away and I can restore that. Or I'm not going to say this thing because if I do, it's going to wreck this thing. And so I'm going to hide something. We, we play deception games to try to control the outcome of situations. And sometimes the stakes are high enough that it feels justified. How do we wrestle with those things? Well, we're reading through the book of Joshua. And, and what we do next is we hit a group of people that their lives depended upon how they would handle the situation. And the impossible question they were asked were, would you rather go to war with all of your friends or would you rather join your enemies? So think about the people you hate most in the world. Would you rather go and live with them or would you rather be at war and fighting all the people you love most? It's like lose-lose. Then they felt that lose-lose and they were in this desperate Place. They're watching the army of Israel come closer and closer and seeing miracles happen and Red Seas parted and Jordan Rivers parted and walls of Jericho falling down. And they're like, we have to do whatever is necessary. And so for them, in that calculation, it became, what do we have and how can we best dictate outcomes? And this is where it becomes really challenging for us as believers because we're called to trust God with outcomes Right? So there's a trust element in here. But then we're also human. And we're like, if I just did or said this one thing, it would smooth the whole road ahead. And God forgives. 
And I think these are the questions that our story from today, our history lesson from today, kind of raises for us. It's a challenge to, um, to try to stop controlling outcomes. If there's nothing else that any of us get from today, if you could remember that thought, please stop trying to control outcomes. Faith is trusting God with outcomes. And usually when we're trying to get a particular outcome, we resort to all sorts of tactics and fear gets the better of us. And afterwards, we really regret a lot of it. And sometimes we find it wasn't even necessary because God had it figured out all the time. And it was just our lack of confidence through the process that made us do all these things that now we have to go back to him. Uh, there is redemption. There was redemption for them. for them. There is redemption for us. So this isn't a hopeless tale. But it's like a cautionary story. Can we learn from their example? So we're going to read about the Gibeonites encountering God in Scripture. Please read with me. You can listen along. If you didn't bring a Bible, I think there are Bibles under the seats, so you can feel free to pull one out. It's Joshua chapter 9. And what I hope will happen as we read this aloud together is that we will encounter God. That's what I believe happens when I read the Bible. When you read the Bible, we encounter God. Bible reading, reading isn't some sort of like educational process whereby then if we're educated enough, we can come to know God. Yes, there's instruction in it, but, but it's, it's God in moments in time. It's God in his nature. It's God in his teaching, in his redemption. We're encountering God as we read. So please, with that in mind, open yourself up to whatever it is that God might say to you. So Joshua chapter 9, let's hear, let's learn, be thinking about what you can pick out from this for you, what is speaking to you. Joshua 9, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as soon as all these people, all the kings, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, this one particular city in the Hivite empire, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. Strategy came into it. And they went and they made ready their provisions and they took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. You, know, you might be a neighbor for all we know. How then can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. Look, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. Behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. 
So the men took some of their provisions, but so the men, meaning the men of Israel, took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. So if they had asked God, he'd be like, uh, <laughs> I call bullcrap. <laughs> like, nope, don't take it, don't buy it. But they didn't, and so therefore it allows this whole thing, which I think in a way is a mercy of God, allows this whole thing to unfold so we can kind of see a full story of how the situation is. God didn't intervene here, and we're actually the beneficiaries of the full lesson. So we see how it, it concludes, how they walk through. So Joshua made peace with them. He made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation of Israel swore to them. You know, promised oath. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their city on the third day. So these people were only three days' walk. I just have to stop and point out, they knew that they were going to be found out. You can't be three days away from an army and think that this ruse is going to hold. Let that kind of impact how you understand what the Gibeonites are doing here. Because it's what I think that we can really get from it. They, they didn't think it was going to work. And even if it did work, they knew it wouldn't work for long. So what are they trying to accomplish here? So um, they reached them on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, Kenoth, Jerim. Kiriath, Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. There's a disgruntled country. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. So now we may not touch them. But this we will do to them. We let them live lest God's wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we're very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. Now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. May God bless the reading of his word. So what stands out to you? What makes you curious as you hear this? What speaks to you? Before we dig into the thoughts that it spoke to me, I'm curious. We just read this encounter. What jumps off the page? Anything? They were supposed to entirely, entirely, and they've done that. Mm -hmm. And now here, due to deception, is Joshua changing God's plan? Hmm. Is Joshua obeying? Is he not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question to ask. Anything else? Sally. I'm just wondering if 
wondering about the long-term implications. Were, mm. were they really worshippers of God, or <coughs> did they have idols and were living among the Israelites? Everything that we can see in Scripture, and I'll probably hint at this and even mention a few things as we go, indicates that they became like wonderful, loyal citizens. Uh, they were part, there, were, there was 72, I think, or 76 Gibeonites that were part of the rebuilding of the temple. And so Nehemiah assigns the Gibeonites a portion. Um, the tabernacle is based at Gibeon for a while. So we see them in the, the history then, the legacy, um, joining and participating. That's a good question. They did have a, a, um, an inheritance after this moment. The point that I initially got drawn into to wanting to engage with was just the concept of deception. You know, they deceived because they were afraid. They were trying to control their outcomes. So what was the instrument, the tool, the method they used to try to save their lives? It was lying, right? But I don't really think this is a story about lying. This isn't like a moral tale about whether it's right or wrong to lie because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They were choosing it because they were trying to survive. We're going to read a thing in, in Deuteronomy where God specifically makes provisions for these sorts of encounters and gives instructions about how to handle them and for what reason. Um, but the question that comes up in my mind is, what if they had just come to Israel and in their desperation said, can we join you? Who does that sound like in Jericho? It's a woman. Rahab. A woman in the land who said, please make a treaty with me, but she kind of went about it the right way. She was also desperate. They go about it the wrong way, and somehow God redeems it, but it, it makes them slaves. Like they had to pay a price for going about it with whatever means necessary. I wonder if they'd come to Joshua and he had gone to the Lord, what God would have said about this particular group. Because it's about the heart. And of all the kings in their area, the Gibeonites are the only ones that decided they wanted to try the peace route. Remember? It says every other king decided they're going to band together and kill. They're going to fight God. So there's actually something subtly noble about the Gibeonites is subtly at least like desiring to be with God. And it reminded me of this psalm. Um, let me just read it for you. It's Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And here's the line. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Well, guess who became doorkeepers in the house of the Lord? Guess who was lugging the firewood? Guess who was hauling water? The Gibeonites. Like they said, we know, they knew they were going to be found out. So it wasn't about we're going to get away with this. They're three days walk. They're about to take over the land. It's not like we're a bunch of sneaks and liars. It's like we're desperate and we'll do whatever it takes. And in a way, I respect the desperation of the Gibeonites, but not their methods. In their desperation and in their like, non-trusting of the Lord, they resorted to all the usual tactics for manipulating outcomes. If I just say this thing, I can get it to turn out the way that I want. 
Lying is just an instrument of control. It's an instrument of manipulation. We say something or we don't say something because we don't want someone to feel badly or we don't want someone to be angry, right? So we're trying to control what that conversation is going to turn into. We say something or don't say something at work because we're trying to control where our career goes. It's, it's outcome-based. And with Rahab and with the Gibeonites, you see all sorts of people coming to the Lord in all sorts of ways. And ultimately, they are saved. Ultimately, they are embraced in the nation of Israel. Ultimately, they become people that um, God uses. And so there's a beautiful part of the Gibeonites. And I think when I entered into reading about them, I had a stereotyped kind of image of them. They're just like the sneaky people that came up to and they tried to trick the nation of Israel and they got caught. But I see actually a people that they wanted to try for peace instead of war. They didn't go to their king, this one city. Remember it says all the kings, all these people, they band together. So they went against their king. And we're going to read later on in the next few weeks as we get there. What happens immediately is all these other nations that were their allies turn on them. So they had to turn their back on all their protective allies in favor of this invading army. They, they, traitor, they were traitors to their nation and their alliances because they saw something in God that was unstoppable and fearful. You know, the, the fear of the God is the beginning of all wisdom. They, they knew he was mightier than their armies. And because they take this tactic, I had always thought that they were kind of like this poor nation. Right? They're like ragtag little scrappy little group of people and they're like putting dust on their faces and pretending. But when you look at Gibeon, and as I started to see all the places it's mentioned, there are things like the great pool of Gibeon, where David's men and Saul's men fought and had like a contest of strength and battle. It was known to be this, this gathering place, the pool. There's another place that scripture mentions the great rock at Gibeon. So there's this like place either of worship. We know high places were there. So there was false idol worship in Gibeon before Israel took it over. Um, but there was also these massive like geological things as a part of this city. Um, it's mentioned as a great city at one point. It says the elders of Gibeon. They had this like ruling council in this wealthy city from all that I can see that had these like well-known attractions and people would go to it. And so they said, we're going to separate from all of our people, all of our families, all of our friends, all of our neighbors, and we're going to sneak our way into God's kingdom. And we know it doesn't work that way, but somehow he worked with their sinfulness to redeem it. And I think for us, this encounter doesn't become just a lesson in don't lie. I think it becomes an encounter, or a lesson in um, when we're most desperate, what do we resort to? And I just want to encourage us all, please don't think that if we resort to all sorts of sinful approaches to achieve a godly outcome, that there won't be consequences. This was a free people who became slaves. This was a mighty people, a wealthy people who became servants. They gave up the freedom that they enjoyed because they took this tactic. So Joshua says, you're cursed. Rahab, on the other hand, she marries, then has Boaz, then has all these kids. Her genealogy becomes Jesus' genealogy. So she comes, goes from being the prostitute to being the lineage of Christ, welcome, embraced, part of, no curse, 
because she was willing to pay any price to leave her life and she came about it the right way. And, and what could we learn from her? What can we learn from the Gibeonites? Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is the passage, this and one other, um, that I really want to read in conjunction with this to give some more context. The most important thing for Joshua in all of this is that they did not inquire to the Lord. So when we're facing those, de- those situations that feel desperate, we must inquire of the Lord, what is it that you want? Because he'll give clarity, he'll give answers, he'll give solutions. And we're looking at it like the only choice I've got here is A or B. And God's like, we've got like multiple alphabets worth of choices. And I'll invent letters in new alphabets to give you choices that you didn't even know existed. So like slow it down a little bit with your limited perspective and your willingness to do whatever it takes to compromise my name for the sake of getting the outcome that you want. But the things you're doing aren't even going to result in the outcome. Would you please? just trust me in this. So what we see in Gibeon is not an outright, as we mentioned, refusal of God. What we have here is a misappropriation of what God said. This is fascinating. Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting with verse 18. So this is what the the leaders of Israel have in their mind. This is the law. This is Moses. Instructions about what to do when you go into the nation of Israel. Or when you go into the nation of the land of Canaan as you're establishing the kingdom of Israel. So this is what they're thinking. Listen to this. Doesn't this sound exactly like the scenario we're encountering? Deuteronomy 20 verse 10. Start with verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, Offer terms of peace to it. Whoa, hold on. They didn't didn't do that to Jericho. What's going on here? This is different instructions. Offer terms of peace. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, (coughs) excuse me, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Uh, Okay. We're like following the law. What's the problem here? Why are they cursed? But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when, when, when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones and the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the, splen- the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. And thus you shall do in all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nation's here, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, local, save nothing alive that breathes, but you shall devote them to destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. Gibeonites were Hivites. The Hivites. And the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. So you do not sin against the Lord your God. For those of you that are visiting us this week, you haven't had the, the luxury of many weeks talking about this, but what we have been recognizing is that Israel was sent in to be the executioners of God's justice. Why would God condemn you know, entire nations, uh, cattle and women and children, entire things? It's because they had been living these abominable practices before the Lord. And so it wasn't because God favored the Israelites and said, okay, you're good guys, they're the bad guys. All the good guys get to kill all the bad guys and keep their stuff. In many cases, God says, you don't keep anything. They go to certain cities like Jericho. No, you're not keeping anything here. This is not a conquest in the typical fashion. It's judgment day. 
And so we recognize for all of us, we hit judgment day. It's a matter of when and how quick. And so in this case, I kind of said for myself, I feel like almost badly for the Jews in, such, in this particular way, they were asked to be the executioners for the Lord. Like, what if God asked us to be that today? All right, all Christians, you are the executioners for the Lord. Execute his judgment upon all those who are like, I don't want that job. I don't, I'm not righteous. And the Jewish people knew they weren't either. And, and Moses goes on to say, it's not because of your righteousness that you get in the land. It's because you're following God and he's chosen you. And if you turn into them, you get the same consequences. It's one-to-one. Love God with everything you've got. Reject him, he will reject you. So anyway, this Conquest is a complicated thing. I know it gives a lot of problems to many people to know how you can have a loving God. But ultimately, we have a just God, and all of us meet him face to face. The conquest of the uh, land of Canaan was basically judgment day. Instead of waiting until you die of old age and then reaching judgment day, or waiting until Christ comes again, and then we all reach judgment day, we have to answer for our faith. So there was lack of faith, the abominations, there were child sacrifices, there were many things that went on in this day which are really horrific. God was well justified to say, no, there is justice, and I'm executing it through my people. But anyway, tangent, just so that that doesn't get left unsaid. Um, When the Israelites were making the treaty with the Gibeonites, they thought they were doing this. They're from very far away. They're not the neighbors. Make them your servants. They weren't doing a wrong thing. They just didn't ask God. They didn't realize they were getting tricked. (laughs) They were following the word of God the wrong way, in the wrong timing, in the wrong situation, because they were just being deceived. If they asked the Lord, what would he have said? I think that's still an open question. I think just like with Rahab, if a person's heart, anybody's heart in the promised land turned towards the Lord, I think he might have embraced. What if the Gibeonites' legacy could have been like Rahab's instead of like their own? What if they didn't try to go about it the roundabout way to get what they wanted, but just came and said, here we are, we humble ourselves, your God is mighty, we need him, save us. We don't know. I can't answer that. It's based on God's justice again, so only he can know how he divides sheep and goats, as Jesus phrases it. But I loved reading this because it didn't make the Israelites complete failures at their job. It meant they didn't ask God what the situation was. And it doesn't make the Gibeonites just as like sneaky, sly, crafty, evil people. They're desperate. And they're not, no, I can relate to that. I can relate to both. I can relate to places where I was trying to do something for God and completely screwed it up. Can I get an amen? Right? You think you're doing the right thing and you only find afterwards, I'm an idiot. Oh, that makes sense why that got all messed up. And we only realize, oh, this is the game the world's playing on us. We got played. Anybody here ever get played by the world? Come on, put your hands up. It happens to us all the time. We fall for stuff. We get tricked into thinking things. So this story is not just so simple. This one actually is really beautifully complex. Beautifully, wonderfully complex and pushes us towards thinking about how we try to control things. Uh, When we're afraid, we try to control it so we don't have to be afraid. Uh, When we're worried about what others are going to think about us, we try to control what we say when we don't say so that they'll think better of us. When we're feeling weak, we try to say things that posture us as seeming stronger than we really are. These are all lies. These are all deceptions. But it's from that place of desperation so often. What if they don't? like me? What if this doesn't work out? May we have enough trust in God 
that we're willing to just walk with him through something without resorting to every manipulation tactic in the book to try to get what we want. He knows better. He knows better. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this entire passage, but on your own, please go at some point to Genesis 20 and read about Abraham and his wife Sarah as they go to two separate places. So Genesis 20 is where they go and they encounter uh, King Abimelech. And Abraham lies about his wife, saying, she's my sister. And he goes into a long explanation to Sarah and to the king, ultimately, why they lied. He said, I was afraid. I looked at all you pagan people who have no fear of God in you. And I knew that if I told you she was my wife, you'd kill me. And so I lied to you so that I could save her life and mine. He's trying to control the outcomes. And in so doing, there's a curse that God puts upon King Abimelech and all his women and the, the country. The same thing happened to Pharaoh. There were plagues. Like God's not having any of the sin. And so instead, Abraham makes his life harder, puts all their lives at risk, does all these things instead of just going and saying the thing. And in the end, Abimelech's like, here, just have your wife back. I didn't know. And Pharaoh and others are like, here, take goods, take possessions, take things. Leave us. <clears throat> this was Abraham's story as well. So before we put the Gibeonites in a box and say that they were just this kind of sneaky people, uh, Father Abraham played the exact same game that we play. The lesson here is twofold. It's that God is in the business of redemption. And it didn't matter that Abraham took matters into his own hands in terms of God fulfilling his purposes. God was able to bring reconciliation and bring forgiveness and bring grace. And Abraham got to continue along his way. The Gibeonites made a mess of things. And Joshua and Israel didn't consult Lord. They made a mess of things, but he redeemed it. And in the end, they become part of the family. You know, I wonder if that psalm was written by uh, David thinking back to the Gibeonites. I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than live in the tents of wickedness. You see, because ultimately there is a good kind of desperation. There really is a good kind of desperation. Desperate for God at all costs. But not at the cost of our own holiness. Not at the cost of our own ethics and morals and values and integrity before the Lord. How can you be pursuing God at the cost of your integrity and holiness? But I actually wish there were more people desperate for God, willing to do whatever they could. Saying, you know what, I don't care about my house or my job or the next cell phone or the vacation or the anything. I just want God. And I would give up all my friends. I'd go to battle against all my friends. If that's what it took to get on God's side in this life. And I'd be willing to give up my king. I'd be willing to give up my house. I'd go from being a landowner to slavery if it just meant that I could live in the house of the Lord forever. Because one day in his courts is so much better than anything else, anywhere else. Like, we're not desperate enough for God. So blame the Gibeonites for their methods, but don't blame them for their desperation. They are actually one of the few people that got what was going on there and sought peace instead of war. 
We're so casual about our pursuit of God. If and when we have time to spend with him, we do. And if we have, when we have time to gather with others in Christian community, we do. And if and when we have time to come and gather for worship on Sundays or Friday nights or whatever we do. And he loves that. But it is such a far cry from desperation. And yet the people that I know and see in Scripture, they were truly desperate. Paul's like, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to be shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and all these things, and I don't care because all that I want is Christ. So come at me. Friends, family, reputation, education, wealth, status, society, culture, king. Like That's Paul's list of enemies. So we have our own list of things, but I long for people who are desperate for the Lord. It's such an inspiration to me to see people who are desperate for the Lord. But just go about it God's way. Be desperate in God's way for God's result. And trust Him for where that'll lead. Don't need to control outcomes. And we're in all different situations, and whether it's planning a renovation out of a building, or when it's whether it's talking about your marriage, or whether it's thinking about the politics in our country, which I refer back to, and it just continues to always be this heated and divisive issue. Are we desiring and desperate for God above all? That was the Gibeonites, in a way that there's someone that we want to be like. We just don't want to do it the way they did it. It's like the Pharisees. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. <laughs> Please, let us learn from the, the Gibeonites how to be desperate well. How to trust well. How not to take matters into our own hands. And we were praying over David and Michaela shortly. You're trying to set up this life moving forward together. And so it prompts us to say, well, how can we set ourselves up for the future? And what things we want to implement now that will grow into this? Just take it a day at a time. Be desperate for the Lord and for living for Him because a million days lived for God results in the life that you want to get. But the controlling of all the outcomes to try to get where you're going to get is just going to be limited in scope, incomplete in strength. You're going to run out, wear out, fail, fall, all that stuff. It applies to marriage so well. It applies to us in our faith. It applies to us in our fears. And it applied to the Gibeonites in their lives as well. And this is why we take communion. <laughs> because we're saying, hey, God, <laughs> hello, Jesus, we're desperate for you. We don't come to communion like, this is cool. It's not the thing. It's not that thing. Communion's not that thing. Communion's like, I'm all out of options. Jesus, you're it. Communion is like, there's only one good way to do this life, and it, I'm not doing it. You did it. Help me. So I hope we come to bread and juice with a sense of desperation. I want to see people like pushing each other out of the way. I want people to get trampled on their way to the front of the sanctuary this morning. I want people drinking like four, five, six, taking plates and like guzzling them. So funny because we're so tame. Don't be so tame in your relationship with Christ. Don't. Don't. Sell out for him. Be desperate for him. But just be cautious in the measures you use along the way. 
The one thing Joshua did wrong was not his making a treaty. He was actually instructed to make treaty. The one thing was wrong was just he didn't ask God if this is the time to do that. <laughs> so that's what it comes down to. God, what's this moment for? What's this day for? What am I supposed to do today? And then you live for him today, and then he takes care of our future. So Gail, Eloise will come join us in a moment. Let's come to the front and lead us in a closing song. And um, I invite you at any time during that song to come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion with each other, communion with Christ, communion with Father, Son, Spirit. Um, I encourage you as you come to communion whenever you're ready um, to take communion today to deepen your desperation for God. I encourage you to take communion today uh, and give over control to God. I encourage you to take communion today confessing your need for his mercy. And just like the covenantal nature of our story, I invite you to come take communion today in renewal of your personal covenant with the Lord. And if you do that, communion will be the best thing that ever happened to you today. Father God, may you bless these elements, these people, your people. Give us wisdom beyond our years and beyond what we can see with our eyes. Uh, may we be wise uh, as serpents, but meek as doves. May we just live with your divine wisdom and uh, follow your way to your outcomes, whatever they may be. We thank you for Jesus and his way, his outcome, your outcome, and the trust that he exhibited to do it the right way all the way. And we pray that that would be our story as well, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.